Book Maricena As read by Green-Eyed Music Lover Part 4 Catabasis Mara looks into the camera and lets the fire in her eyes speak. They are waiting on her. The distributary's millions, her awoken people. She has stoked their curiosity with 30 years of painstaking analysis. When they look up at the night sky, they see the stars of her observatories among the crowded bands of habitats, the spindly orbital factories, towering elevator counterweights, the burning roads of matter streams. Let me tell you of our world, she says. There are the facts of tectonics and atmosphere, of water and climate, the parameters of the sun that feeds them. No infants died last year, no child went unfed, no youth came of age illiterate. No one suffered illness who might have been treated. We have long surpassed the Utec gathered from the ship spire. Yet, we have grown carefully and cleanly. We have eluded pollution, eradicated plague, and chosen peace. No Maltec weapon has been discharged in centuries. Our atomic weapons were dismantled before they could ever be used. We are our own triumph. She has elected not to use graphics or theater. She would rather they remember her face. You know yourselves, she says. Let me tell you of your cosmos. We live in a spatially infinite isotropic universe 12.1 billion years old. Its metallicity is ideal for life and for the spread of technological civilizations. In time, the distance between all points in the universe will contract to zero, and the cosmos will collapse into a singularity, to be reborn in fire. There will be no end to eternity here. She pauses. She waits. The whole world is out there, begging for the answer to the question. Our world is a gift. And we must refuse it. They are awoken. They love secrets. They will wait for her to explain. We have detected a pattern that was imprinted into our universe by its ancestor. A fingerprint of the initial conditions into which existence was born. From this information, we have confirmed the most primordial of awoken myths. Our universe is a subset of another. We live within a singularity, a knot in space-time that orbits a star in another world. Conventional relativity would suggest that time outside an event horizon passes quickly compared to a clock within. But our universe has a peculiar relationship with its mother. Thousands of years have passed for us on the distributary. Outside? Centuries, at most. We are a swift eddy in a slow river. These ideas may not surprise you after centuries of theorizing and philosophy, but we have decrypted new data from the cosmic microwave and neutrino background signals. We have discovered voices. The voices of distress calls. 
they tell a story of bravery, of war, and of desperate loss. We were not always immortal. We did not earn this utopia by covenant with any cosmic power or by attaining an enlightened moral condition. We are refugees. We fled from an apocalyptic clash between our ancestor's civilization and an invading power. She lowers her eyes. The signals we have retrieved tell us that our ancestors were on the edge of defeat. Perhaps extinction. It is time that we accept our debt. The distributary is a refuge, not a birthright. A base to rebuild our strength, not a garden to tend. I ask you, Awoken, to join me in the hardest and most worthy task a people has ever faced. We must leave our heaven, return to the world of our ancestors, and take up the works they abandoned. If some of them survive, we must offer aid. If they have enemies, we must share our strength. We must go back to the war we fled and face our enemies there. She lets them dangle a moment before she drives it home. We have also determined that our birthright, our immortality, is tied to the fundamental traits of this universe. Once we leave, we will begin to age again. In time, we will all die. Will you join me, Awoken? Will you answer my call? All I offer you is hardship and death. All I ask is everything you can offer. But you will see an older starlight. You will walk in a deeper dark than this world has ever known. Nigh One You are the devil, Elise Lee whispers. I remember. In one of the old tongues, Mara means death. An hour before, Mara's ship touches down a polite two kilometers from the pearl groves, and she looks out across mazes of channel and tidal ponds to the compounds of ancient silver white stone beyond. Two-ton oysters glitter in the shallows, their shells jeweled with mineral inclusions. Seabirds peck and fret along narrow white beaches. Mara lifts up her black formal skirts and begins her long walk to Elise Lee's retreat, the sanctuary of former queens. Mara, Aldrin whispers through her throat mic, don't do this. Take sure with you at least. But she has to do this or she'll never be able to face herself again. The sun batters at her. She hides under a parasol, but heat gathers in the folds of her garment in the soles of her shoes. When she squints against the glare, she thinks she can see the shining grains of her fleet in orbit. The holes, built under Utech supervision to the specifications of radically post-conscious AI that will one day fly between worlds. It is far too late to stop the project now. Far too late for second thoughts. 
Exactly 12.1 billion years too late, really, for Mara in particular. Mara kicks the sand and trudges on. She's in a foul mood when she reaches the old queen's house, but the sight of Elise Lee sitting on the porch with a battered tea service makes her smile. Thank you for seeing me, Mara says. Thank you for coming. I was afraid you'd leave the universe without saying goodbye. Elise pours her a cup of cool blackberry tea. Have a seat. How's Queen Tell? She has declined to endorse my expedition, Mara admits, tucking her feet beneath her on the wide wooden deck chair. The tea is too sweet, but so blissfully cool. I'm sure you understand her reasons. You mean she declined to endorse the sudden violent severance of tens of thousands of threads from the tapestry of our society. How surprising. Elise looks Mara over, critically, then sits back to sigh. A scribe once told me that the definition of a utopia is a place where every single person's happiness is necessary to everyone else. You're going to make a lot of unhappy people, Mara. You'll make the lives of everyone in the world tangibly worse. Not just those you've lured to certain death, but those who will grieve their departure, and all those who will come to grieve for lack of labor and knowledge you took with you. My people volunteered. Your mother told you, Elise says, that it is one thing for you to have a particular power over people, but another thing entirely to deny that you are using it. You once told me, Mara counters, that I had to consider the symbol people made out of me, and that if it were good, then I had to be that symbol for them. I had to perform as they required. I have done so. I have been the best thing I can think to be. Is this the best thing you could think to be? Elise says with very practiced neutrality. Mara drinks her tea in delicate silence. The old queen sets her cup down hard enough to chip. Mara jumps in quiet shock. The tea service is an heirloom from Shipspire. Her face hardens with the power of ancient command. Mara, I'm at least as clever as you. Do me the credit of acknowledging it. I have worked for many hundreds of years to arrange this outcome, Mara says forthrightly, but without the courage to look Elise Lee right in the eyes. I have nurtured and tended the Echelius belief so that there will always be awoken who feel uncomfortable in paradise, guilty for the gift of existence in the distributary, people who will come with me. I know... Elise lays a hand on Mara's, and for a moment the touch almost makes Mara sigh in gratitude, to be seen, to be known without revulsion. Then Elise's old strength pins her palm to the table. The diaphragm, Elise hisses. The Theodicy War? Did you arrange it all? Nigh to. No, Mara says, which is a lie told with truth. 
Do you understand what you've done? Have you reckoned the full cost? She has convinced tens of thousands of Awoken to abandon their immortality. She has deprived the distributary an infinite quantity of joy, companionship, labor, and discovery, all the works that might be accomplished by all the people who will join her in her mission to another world. When she lies awake at night, seized by anxiety, she tries to tally up the loss in her head, but it's too huge and it becomes a formless thing that stalks her down the pathways of her bones like the creak of a gravity wave. Some infinities are larger than others, she tells her old captain. I believe we are here for a reason, and this is the way to fulfill that purpose. And how much would you sacrifice? Your mother? Your brother? Are the Awoken real to you at all? Elise leans across her pinned hand, viper fierce striking. Do you think my people were made to die for you? Not for me. For our purpose. For our fate. For a home we abandoned. It's in the charter, Mara. The document on the ship spire that... And even Elise Lee falls into a hush as she broaches one of the primal mysteries her memory of creation. That shaped the... the way I made this universe. You were the first, Mara acknowledges. The first one here laid down the rules. Elise Lee releases her hand and collapses back into her chair. Why are you here, Mara? To tell you the truth at last. To ask you for that boon you owe me. At last, Elise sighs. Well, I knew the day would come. I think I'll be glad to have this weight off my shoulders. You'll ask me to throw my support behind your mission, won't you? The First Queen says, go with Mara. Awaken from this dream and go fight for your home. Is that it? No, Mara says, with her heart in her throat. With trepidation bubbling in her gut. You cannot keep a secret buried like a vintage for so many centuries, and then unbottle it without any ceremony. The boon I ask is for your forgiveness. Then she explains the truth. She tells Elise Lee what she did, about the choice Elise Lee would have made if Mara had not made her own first. It's only an extension of what Elise has already deduced. When she's finished, her ancient captain's jaw trembles, her hand shakes, a keen slips between her clamped teeth. The oldest woman in the world conjures up all the grief she has ever felt, and is still not enough to match Mara's crime. You're the devil, Elise Lee whispers. I remember, in one of the old tongues, Mara means death. Oh, that's too perfect. That's too much. She laughs for a while. Mara closes her eyes and waits. You realize, Elise Lee says, breathing hard, that this is the worst thing ever done. Worse than stealing a few thousand people from heaven. Worse than the thing we fled before we were awoken. Please, Mara begs. 
Please don't say that. Elise Lee rises from her chair. I'll support your fleet, she says. I'll use every favor and connection I have to get your holes completed and through the gateway, and I will do it so that I can hasten your departure from this world. I will do it out of hate for you. I will do it so that every good and great thing we achieve here will ever after be denied to you. You snake. No forgiveness. Do you understand me? It's unforgivable. Go. Go. I'd be very glad if you didn't tell my mother, Mara says. Elise Lee hurls the pitcher of blackberry tea over Mara, turns and goes inside, leaving her to trudge, wet and sticky, but unbowed, back to her ship. She leaves her tea-stained parasol on the deck, but when she remembers it and looks back, it is already gone. Palingenesis 1 Mara thinks of the banyan trees that sprawl across the shallow, silty lakes of a world she will never see again. The waveguides in her helmet detect the image and obey the encrypted command scheme she's rooted into every system in her fleet. She speaks into the flight director and channel. Flight. Sound off for final hold. Fido, go flight. Guidance, go flight. Inko, good constellation, go flight. Geode, go flight. Bio, go flight. As her flight controllers confirm the state of their technical domains, Mara looks out into space through the synthetic gaze of her sensorium. The hulls gleam in the stark blue-white light of the star. Each ship, a silver seed pod braced by immense structural members, and cocooned in reservoirs of spectrally adaptive smart fluid, theoretically enough to survive the horrible forces of transit through a singularity. Mara orders herself not to crane her neck, but she does it anyway, and gets a terrible cramp as she searches the sky for the distributary. There it is, the world of her rebirth, shining, water blue and beautiful, wrapped like a gyroscope and its twin rings, world of laughing corsairs, world of breathless forest hunts, world of mountains flickering with pale Chirikov fire, world of sweet berry-stained lips, and mathematical insight pure as rhodium chime. She will never see it again. Mara thinks of her mother. She doesn't want to, but she does and the memory blindfolds her and muzzles her and plugs her ears so she can hear nothing but Osana's voice on that final night. They're tipsy together, and the evening has wrapped around to morning. Now they sit side by side, mother and daughter, watching the sunrise over the Chrysiad range from Osana's little ranch house on the tundra. I'm not coming with you, Osana says. Mara has been so afraid of this answer for so long that she actually giggles. This can't be happening, of course. This is a nightmare. One of those stress dreams where your powers of persuasion and manipulation fail. Sure, Mom, she says. You've got a ranch to run, after all. More? No, thank you. Osana squints into the dawn. Little age creases surround her eyes. Illegible encryption 
unbroken despite Mara's centuries of effort. The rising light draws a tear. You'll have to send my goodbyes to Aldrin. He's not speaking to me. What? Mara gasped, as if this is the real shock and not losing her mother forever. Why? Because I've already told him I wasn't coming with you. I'm happy here. Mom, Mara says with rising anger. I'm happy here too. That's not the point. A conversation that did not so much and as it beat itself to an unsustainable emotional pulp. Hours later. No catharsis. No closure. Back in the present. Weapons, Aldrin calls. Go flight. Go flight, Mara confirms. The clock is counting. L minus five minutes. Directly off her hull's bow, a sphere of ultra-dense mass awaits for the moment of implosion and collapse. There will only be moments to transit the wormhole before it evaporates. Flight. Sensor. Sure, Ido calls. I have an anomalous starfield occlusions. Bearing. Intercept. Mara shouts. They're missiles. It had to happen. Someone had to try to stop the departure. Someone good and paladin pure who believes they are saving tens of thousands of Awoken from madness and doom. Flight. Fido, do we abort? Negative, Mara snaps. The countdown is a go. Weapons, kill the inbounds. Sir Ido grunts in dismay. They're going to get through, she says. Five or six, at least. Aldrin. Mara opens their personal channel with a thought of his face. Reassign your guns to protect the gateway. We'll lose halls, Mara. I know. Do it. Mara opens the command interface for the gateway and sends the image of a bloody thorn. The countdown skips instantly to zero. All ships, we are aborting directly to launch. Brace for acceleration. She issues the emergency launch order. The hull screams with thrust. Mara's suit floods with cushioning gel. She thinks of her mother's face, trying to fix it perfectly in her mind, and her sensorium tries vainly to open a channel to Osana. As the hull plunges into the singularity, the last thing Mara sees is the mournful error message. No connection. No connection. No connection. Cannot connect to Osana. Palingenesis 2 Here, in this time without time, pocketed by the ever-scattering cosm, touched, as an assassin touches the gun in the secret fold, there is an eon within, and I am going without. This is where we belong, interstitial, in that space between. This is where truth collapses supercritical. There is a war, and its name is existence. There are two ways to fight. One is the sword, and one is the bomb. By the sword, I mean the way to fight that is tempered and solid. The way that is made from old things and that triumphs by the reduction to simplicity. This way is known to those who study the cosmos. Take any part of it at any time, and you will see an edge and say, 
This is a weapon. By the bomb, I mean that way of being that is complex and schematic and that must attain a criticality to attack. The way that is made from new things and that triumphs by the arrangement of intricacy. This way is known to those who study themselves. Take any component of the bomb in isolation and you will say, what is this? I cannot understand its purpose, yet in it is the possibility of a fire. Numberless, all the spaces that surround the universe, subordinate and superordinate, are the relationships to the intrinsic world that is only itself. We pass now through analogy space that will reify what was once subject into object. That power I held, which was agonist to a mother's reproachment, will be realized and reified. First is the awareness of my vector, which all who follow me held in their hearts. Second is the desire to hear my speech, which all who follow me curled in their ears. Third is the existence at the fault which is the inner tension that all who follow me still sense. We are risen from man and fallen from heaven. We are made again in the fall. What was once us will not ever again be us. I am the uncrowned ever queen, and my only diadem will be the event horizon of the universe, which is my dominion. By falling, I will rise. There are an uncountable number of ways to be between zero and two. Palagenesis 3 The first hulk they colonized was a one-kilometer habitat tender. Reactor still burning, gravity still steady at three-quarters of Earth's, Driven by an AI long ago reduced to basic subroutines, the tender had completed its final mission to wrangle an Oort cloud comet down into the asteroid belt. When no orders came for the comet's disposition, it had set about gardening. The comet's surface was domed and soiled, and tethered mirrors kept taut by photon pressure focused starlight into a silvery radiance, which fed the oxygen forest well enough. It would have been a marble of greenery and ancient ice, but the surface had caught fire recently. Oxygen-fueled flame killed nearly everything except insects and rats. But Mara judged it would be a good fixer-upper. The rats, the first intelligent life they had met since their return, the insects edible. The holes had not survived the unpocketing as well as their passengers. The micro-singularity wormhole propped open by a precipitous spike of dark energy, pooled alloy and ceramic armor like taffy. Missiles mauled five of the holes. Worst of all, the passage through the nightmare lemon between worlds had devastated onboard AI and logic systems. It was time to abandon their cocoons. Aldrin's survey located a reef of derelict spacecraft, apparently convoyed together for mutual aid in the asteroid belt. 
The Jinsum scribes who joined Mara on her journey were even now giddily cataloging cultural markers and ancient records. We'll salvage the holes, Mara told Shiraido. Pull out the raw materials and the systems we can still use, and bring the biosystems of these hulks back online. Once we have reliable gravity, we can start having babies. We'll need weapons, Shur said cheerfully. We don't have enough spare chemistry for firearms right now, and the Maltech we brought with us would blow right through the hull. Also, line-throwing tools and devices for launching satellites off the surfaces of asteroids, hulks, etc. You know what I'm thinking? I cannot say I can imagine, Mara said sarcastically. She imagined the sight of Shura Ido stringing her woman-tall bow and passed the thought away like a card trick. Dwelling on such pleasantries would not do. Will it involve archery? Biggle compound bows with all sorts of tactical knickknacks. Jure paced in delighted thought. I'll be the first woman in the universe to place a comsat in heliocentric orbit with a longbow. You're absurd, Mara said, and at Jure's uninhibited grin of delight. At the thought of exploring and rebuilding this entire reef with her, even at the terrible flinch-thrill idea of sending Shurer into violence and danger, Mara felt a tingle of worrisome warmth and gladness. So, Jur said, lunging into that moment of weakness to get what she wanted. When will you tell everyone what's happened to Earth? At first they thought Earth a ruined world but there were signs otherwise. At least it had not turned into a machine-gnaw corpse like Mercury. When Aldrin's back from deploying his drones, she narrowed her eyes. Jure, can you hear what I'm thinking? What? As in telepathically? The Queen's bodyguard closed her eyes. Everyone's been feeling spooky, but I'm not sure that extends to transmitting. Mara! Good grief! Revanche 1 Aldrin returned to the reef during the long, unquiet night, when the awoken people huddled in their beds and hammocks, gathered in ice caves and half-lit habitat cylinders, haunted by visions and portents. Faces appeared to them in the sublimating swirl of cometary ice. Images and portraits became impossible to distinguish from their real counterparts. All statues were shrouded, lest they appear to passers-by as corpses. Something had changed to them after their return to the outer cosmos. A live-wire hum passed through the tendons in their hands. Their jaws popped when they swallowed, and flashes of light, like the impact of cosmic rays, obscured their vision. It felt to Mara as if they had lowered their feet into an ocean of charge and raised their hands to some invisible cable overhead, as if they were now again in contact with immense and opposing forces that had left an ancient mark. It feels like I've got scurvy, Shur Ido snarled, 
having never had scurvy in her life. As if all these old wounds in my soul are opening up again. People keep sending me notes, Mara said. Her sensorium had died in transit, so the notes came to her through whispers and scraps of precious paper. They say, I saw your face in my dream. I saw your eyes. I heard your voice. So it's not just me. Aldrin was the second person to bring her revelations on that day. First was Keldavaj, the all-teacher, one of Mars' most joyful recruits to the expedition. She was a master of pedagogy, able to mold any mind into a shape ready to learn, able to melt any fact into a fluid that could be poured. I'm in from the Jensen Labs, she said, and they've learned something wonderful. We're all a bit magic now. Tell me more, Mara poured her a snifter of icy commentary water. What does magic mean? Some sort of weak acausality. Kelda lowered her flower bulb build into a hammock of tangled plastic. They've been firing encoded neutrino beams through volunteers, and it looks as if the resulting patterns of scatter depend on the cognitive and emotional state of the target. It's a very reliable detection, at least for Sigma, but the effect size is terribly small. Mara digested this with a shot of ancient ice, slushy against her tongue. A causality. You mean that whatever's happening, whatever influence we have on, say, neutrino beams, it's not accounted for by physics? Not any physics we know. At face, it seems to violate some conservation laws, which would make Emmy Noether's head spin. Kelda remembers the names of her ancient physicist heroes, even when she cannot tell which way is sunward. Secret physics, Mara thought of the Traveler and its works. We've all felt it, haven't we? We know we're, how to say, trapped in the clinch between light and dark. She wondered, without quite so much portent, we're in contact with certain numinous elements. Kelda held out her cup for more water. The question is, your majesty. Don't call me that. We're operating on a direct democracy here. Kelda rolled her eyes. The question is, do we continue to think of this as science? Do we teach it as physics? Causal closure says that everything that happens in a material system has a material cause. However, the symbolic structures in the mind are triggering material effect. Shouldn't we call that what it is? Death had no dominion, Mara whispered. Pardon? We're in death's dominion now. We're all dying again. We were immortal and there's a tributary, weren't we? Some part of us was attuned to the universe. 
And now that we're no longer receiving the distributary signal, we're attuned to something new. That was when the hatch slammed open and Aldrin stumbled in, grinning ferociously, clutching a scummy fistful of cytogel to a slash across his neck. Aliens, he rasped. I found aliens, and one of them cut my throat. <laughs> <laughs>